Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. Thanks for being here. Beautiful day the Lord has made. Um, like Shay mentioned, we've got this men's ministry coming up. Uh, and so my son Jackson and I will be at the information center after the service signing people up. And so guys, if you want to drop by, find out more about that or sign up, please, please do. Main reason we're doing signups ahead of time is so we know how much food to buy. And so I uh, would appreciate you doing that. And then also in your bulletin, you'll see that uh, some of our missionaries from Swaziland are going to be here next week, Erica and Michalisi, and we're going to do a potluck after church. And so would love for you to hang out and hear more about their ministry and how we can partner with them. Uh, after the sermon this morning, we're going to invite all believers in Christ to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, before that, we've got a fairly monumental task before us, which is to cover one of the longest passages in Acts in a short amount of time on a communion Sunday. So um, the events that we're going to read about here in today's passage happened to the Apostle Paul in the first century A.D. Paul was under arrest because of the social unrest that resulted from his preaching about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And today's passage reads like a blockbuster action movie. Uh, there's an ambush, there's a nighttime military operation, there's a suspenseful court scene, and there's plenty of political corruption. And we will see how God uses all of these things to point us to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 23, verse 12. Before we read, let's ask the Lord to help us with his word. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for allowing us to be here today for, for worship, uh, for fellowship, to grow closer to you, Lord. And we ask that as we read your holy word, this word that you breathed out by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, teach our hearts, and teach our spirits, Lord. Please use your word to open our eyes to your glory, to your majesty, to uh, the, the fullness of joy that we can have in you. We ask that you would protect us from the evil one. We pray all these things for the glory of your name, God, and for the fullness of our joy now and forever. Amen. So remember, Paul's in the Roman military barracks in Jerusalem. Jesus has just visited him in his resurrection body in the middle of the night. He's encouraged Paul, told him to be courageous and confident in the Lord because all of these things happening to Paul are part of God's sovereign plan for him. And Jesus promised Paul that you are still going to testify before many human courts and eventually in the capital city of the Roman Empire itself, Rome. And so he says, Paul, this is not the end of the story for you. Now let's look here at Acts 23, verses 12 to 22. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, 
Give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. It's ironic here that the Jews, <clears throat> right, what are they accusing Paul of? What do they hate Paul for? They hated Paul for allegedly breaking their laws. While they intentionally now break God's law by planning to ambush Paul and murder him. And we read that the one person who does the right thing here was not an adult, but a boy. Paul's nephew, who is likely a preteen or a teenager, he runs to the military barracks in Jerusalem and he tells Paul and then the Roman Tribune about this group of men's plan to ambush and murder Paul. Young people, this is a, a poignant reminder to you that God will use you to do great things for his glory if you give your life to him. Some of the greatest things done in human history for the glory of God's name has been done by teenagers and children. We read in, in 2 Kings that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he was the one who brought reform to God's people. He was the one who commanded God's people to return to the Lord and to live according to the scriptures. And even in the past 150 years here, um, some of the most Holy Spirit-empowered Christian movements were started by teenagers and college-age students in our country and around the globe. That's why, young people, I encourage you to read some church history so you can see the awesome things that young people have done for the glory of God. It's a, it's a great passage uh, today. It, it, it reminds you teenagers, you college students, that you do not have to follow the crowd you don't have to follow people who are older than you just because they're older. That doesn't necessarily make them right. You don't have to give in to peer pressure. You don't have to be like everybody else. In fact, God tells you he wants you to be different from the world around you. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by God. Offer your life to God to be used by God in a mighty way to make his name great right now where you are at in life, in your house and at your school and in your neighborhood, on your sports team, in this church and around the world. And for, and for Christian adults, this passage reminds us here, this, these verses 
It reminds us never to underestimate what young people are capable of. I mean, I was thinking about this. Right now, right now in Stanwood, if you would just go down the road a little bit, teenagers are running our town. They're running the restaurants. They're running businesses by themselves in our town. When you go get to lunch, you're probably going to be talking to young people. And so as Christians, this is why God talks so much about the importance of passing along the faith to the next generation. Over and over in Scripture we read that. Our job as older Christians is to mentor the younger people in our midst and to give them opportunities now to serve with us in the church. As parents, our job is to disciple our kids now and bring them to church and and talk about Jesus around the dinner table and when we're on the car. You don't hope that the church does the job for you and then when they graduate from high school, they're gonna find God out on their own. Right? Praise God that's happened. But man, use your position for the glory of God as much as you can to point young people to Jesus in your life. And I think what we'll find is we can learn much from young people too. So God here chooses to carry out his plans for Paul through, through a boy. And now God is going to carry out his plans for Paul through hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers. Let's read this. Verses 23 to 35. Then he, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Can you imagine how epic (laughs) this this scene must have been the apostle paul on horseback surrounded by 470 roman soldiers leaving jerusalem at night and then marching 35 miles by moonlight through the countryside The, the romans did not just do this for anybody Okay, so the fact that the tribune put, this is half of his men, half of his soldiers. He had about a thousand soldiers. He said, I want half of them to go with Paul. The fact that he does that 
tells us how much danger Paul was in and also how careful the tribune realized he needed to be to protect Paul's life. He was, a, he was an innocent man. He was accused of great things and he was a Roman citizen by birth. And yet this common thread that we see at work here orchestrating all these events is the Lord Jesus himself who already promised Paul that all these things would happen. And the Lord is the one who holds kings and rulers and nations in the palm of his hand. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So when Paul eventually arrived in Caesarea, he stayed in Herod's palace while he's, they're all waiting for his accusers to come to court there. So let's read what happened, Acts 24, 1 to 9. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, so Paul's here on trial before the Roman governor, Antonius Felix, who was governor of Judea from 52 AD to 59 AD. And for this trial, the Jews from Jerusalem have hired essentially an attorney named Tertullus to prosecute Paul in court. And Tertullus produces three main charges against Paul. First, Tertullus argues that Paul is a plague. And what do plagues do? They rapidly spread and infect others. So Tertullus argues that Paul had infected others by stirring up riots among all the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. And Tertullus was, of course, twisting the truth. Uh, yes, riots started in many of the cities where Paul had preached the gospel, but if we remember correctly, having read through the book of Acts, it was not Paul who started those riots. It was the Jews and the Gentiles opposed to Paul and his gospel who had started those riots. And then the second uh, thing Tertullus does here is he, he argues that Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he uses this term Nazarenes in a derogatory way to describe Jesus and his followers. Jesus was from Nazareth. His followers are Nazarenes. And so he, he's attempting essentially to give the Christians a bad name here. And he's arguing that Paul is the ringleader of all these terrible Christians and of all the illegal things they're doing in the empire. And third, Tertullus argues that Paul tried to profane, corrupt the, the, the Jewish temple 
But thank goodness the Jews were there. They seized him. These guys were there. Now, if, if you remember correctly, what actually happened is this. The Jews in Jerusalem, uh, specifically these Jews who were visiting from Asia, who were in town for Pentecost, saw Paul walking down the street with his Gentile Christian friend named Trophimus. That was it. <laughs> and so the Jews from Asia assumed from that that Paul was trying to desecrate the Jewish temple by sneaking in unclean Gentiles and bringing them into the holy places only reserved for Jews. So talk about jumping to the wrong conclusion, right? But they wanted him to be guilty, right? They wanted dirt on him. And so now the attorney Tertullus puts his own spin on it, and he says, you know, he changes the story. He says, Paul and Trophimus didn't actually desecrate the temple. They just attempted to desecrate the temple. But the Jews stepped in and saved the day by seizing Paul and Trophimus before they could do that. And so these were Tertullus's three charges against Paul. You know, we want to remember this. Just if you visualize this, it's, it's Paul alone versus a lot of people. Okay? All these Jews and their attorney in the, before the Roman Empire, and here's Paul, right? So what's Paul going to say to defend himself? Well, let's uh, look at uh, 24 verse 10 here. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an uh, accusation uh, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul defends himself here in three ways. First, Paul argues that his civil behavior in the Roman Empire has been blameless. He, he's broken none of the Roman laws. In fact, Paul encourages the judge, Felix, to verify with the citizens of Jerusalem that he had not stirred up any crowds or instigated any riots while in Jerusalem. And Paul adds that Tertullus and the Jewish leaders can't prove any of these allegations against him. And furthermore, the ones who actually started all these rumors, the Jews from Asia, who were told to come to court, didn't even bother coming to court to accuse Paul. And so there was no actual proof of Paul's guilt. It was all hearsay. Second, Paul argues that, that his religious behavior 
has been blameless. He says for a second time that he has a clear conscience because he knows that he has faithfully tried to obey the Lord and to accurately, um, rightly interpret Scripture and rightly apply Scripture, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. And then, and then Paul points out that, there, you know, there's actually a number of similarities of beliefs uh, between these Jews and me. We, uh, we both seek to worship the God of the patriarchs. Uh, the, we both believe the law and the prophets. We, we both have hope in God for the future resurrection of the just and the unjust on the last day. And, and Paul doesn't really care here that Tertullus calls the Christians Nazarenes. That he tries to peg them like as this rebellious, weird sect. Actually, calling Christians a sect works in Paul's favor because the Jews that Tertullus is representing came from religious sects, like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so by labeling Christianity just another religious sect, Tertullus kind of puts them on equal ground with all the other religious sects in the, the Roman Empire. And then the third way Paul defends himself here is by simply saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And there was no, Jew, or there was no Roman law that said he couldn't do that. There was uh, no Jewish law that said he could not believe that. And, and uh, he points out that even though he disagrees with many of the Jews about the way they interpret Scripture, those disagreements are not matters that should waste the time and energy of the Roman court system. And so, even though Paul had no attorney here to represent him, he, he defends himself brilliantly <laughs> by the power of the Spirit. And, we, and, and the reason he was able to do that is because of Jesus. Jesus kept his promise to give Paul the right words to speak at his trial. And it's very similar. You'll, you'll notice all the similarities between Paul's trial and Jesus' trial. Just like at Jesus' trial, it was clear to the Roman governor that Paul was not guilty of any crime. And so now it's kind of on Felix, the governor, see what he's going to do here. And what we're going to learn about the Roman governor Felix is that like many politicians before him, Felix was a people pleaser and Felix was a procrastinator. Okay. Verses 22 to 23 say this, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So instead of making the Jews mad at him, right, um, Felix does not want to make the Jews mad at him because that's gonna make his life harder, that's gonna make it up the chain, to his bosses, and his bosses are gonna go after him, just like we saw with Pontius Pilate, right? He, had, he, had the he, he knew what the right thing was to do, the, the, the verdict that should be made, and, and he didn't do it. Instead, to appease the Jews, he delays the judgment. And he makes kind of this abstract statement that I'll, I wanna wait for Lysias to show up, and then I'll judge accordingly. Now this is the same Lysias who has just sent Paul to Felix so that Felix would judge Paul, okay? So it doesn't really make sense. It's kind of just a stall tactic most likely. But since Paul had still not been found guilty of any wrongdoing, what do you have to do with this guy? Well, Felix gave him 
generous privileges while he stays in custody in Caesarea. And Paul's friends were free to visit Paul whenever they wanted. They could bring him whatever he needed while he waited for Lysias to come to Felix. And this waiting period would last for a long time. But meanwhile, Paul's circumstances took a fascinating turn. Okay, Paul's official judge here is Felix. Felix. And his wife, Drusilla, wants to learn more about Jesus with Felix. They want to hear this message, this gospel message that Paul's been preaching. And so what it looks like at first glance is that Paul has something that his judge wants, and that is spiritual truth. And Paul is now, if, it's funny because it kind of gives Paul an upper hand now. He is in a position to use his knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ however he wants. He could actually twist the truth to his advantage in order to get Felix to free him, but he doesn't do that. What Paul's going to do is he's going to further prove his innocence. He's going to further prove through his actions that he's not this law-breaking criminal that he's been accused of. Rather, Paul demonstrates that he is a humble servant of the Lord who has been commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus to tell people how they can be reconciled with God. He's going to show through his actions that he is who he says he is. So let's look at verses 24 to 26. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now, it's going to be helpful for you to know a little bit more about Felix and Drusilla's backstory, okay? As a political leader, Felix, the Roman governor, was known, known historically for being immoral, unjust, heavy-handed, and incompetent. Felix had made some really bad leadership decisions that resulted in the oppression and death of many Jewish people Yet he stayed in office because his brother was a politician too who had a lot more political power than him and kind of kept Felix in power. And the reason Felix kept meeting with Paul in jail, it says, is because Felix was greedy and he was immoral and he wanted Paul to pay him off. Because allegedly there was, you know, there's different commentators think that Paul had access to a lot of money. He had just brought this huge offering to Jerusalem and basically he, he wants... Paul's money. And maybe, hopefully, you know, at this first meeting, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, maybe they were genuinely interested in Jesus. But here's what we know about Drusilla, his wife. She was most likely in her late teens, um, and she was Jewish. Uh, she had already been engaged to one man, but she broke off that engagement because he wasn't Jewish. And then she married a different man, not Felix, but Felix used his political power to influence Drusilla to leave her husband and to come marry him instead. So this was Drusilla's third serious relationship, her second husband before the age of 20. 
Needless to say, historically, Felix, neither Felix nor Drusilla were known for good judgment nor for their exceptional morality. Okay. That being said, Felix and Drusilla certainly were not too far gone for the Lord to save them from their sin, right? Nobody is. And so God now has sovereignly placed Paul in Felix and Drusilla's life at such a time as this to tell them about the good news of salvation and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And verse 24 says that Paul spoke to them about something. It says he talked to them about faith in Jesus Christ. And as we've seen over and over in the book of Acts, true Christians, the first Christians, the orthodox teaching of the church, true Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only true God that he is the one mediator, the only savior of humanity. And the way that we receive his forgiveness, which we need in order not to suffer eternal punishment, the, or, the, 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 the only way that we receive eternal life from him and a good, peaceful relationship with him is through faith in him. Or, or by trusting in him alone to give us peace with God because of what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. So faith in Jesus is the means by which we receive the saving grace of God. It's by grace, God's grace that we're saved. It happens through faith. And so the, the overarching subject here that Paul spoke with Felix and Drusilla about was faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the way that Paul talked to them about faith in Jesus might surprise you. Verse 25 says that Paul talked to Felix and Drusilla, as non-Christians, about faith in Jesus by reasoning with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So, so for us... The question then is, how does faith in Jesus relate to these things? How does faith in Jesus relate to righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, especially as it relates to our conversations with the non-Christians in our lives? I mean, when was, really, when was the last time you talked intimately with a non-Christian about righteousness and self-control? and the coming judgment. If you have, praise God. But for those of us maybe who haven't, we're fortunate that Paul modeled this for us because in a sense what Paul is modeling here is how to share the whole counsel of God with non-Christians. Paul does not merely tell non-Christians about this good thing they should have. Okay? Paul first tells them about the terrible situation that humanity is in which will then make them see the goodness of the Lord and the goodness of the gospel much more good in their eyes, okay? A while back, I was, I was glad to see somebody post on Facebook a Bible verse. It was John three seventeen, which says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Who's going to argue with that, right? So people like this. I mean, it was, you know, all these likes, all these thumbs up, loves. And rightfully so. What's not to like? God did not send his son Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world. That is totally true. And at the same time, if you only read that verse, 
one might wrongly think it's saying that Jesus does not condemn the world. They we might think that Jesus is only the loving Savior who saves the world. And I kind of wish that person would have shared the next verse too, which is John 3, 18, in which Jesus continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, the message of Jesus is not that Jesus does not condemn Jesus say, said that every one of us is already under God's condemnation. Thus, to be saved from his condemnation, we must repent and believe on Jesus Christ. See, the message of Jesus' salvation isn't really great news to the non-Christians around us until they hear what Jesus died to save them from. And that's most likely what Paul was explaining to Felix and Drusilla. Let's look, let's look at what he talked to them about, and then let's see how that pertains to each of us today, whether we're followers of Jesus or not. First, it says Paul talked to these non-believers about righteousness. Who talks about righteousness? Right? What is righteousness? Righteousness refers to what is right, what is moral, what is just and good. Righteousness is the opposite of what is wrong and immoral and uh, unjust. And so Paul does something here that makes many people in our world squirm. He asserts that there is an objective standard outside of ourselves that defines rightness and wrongness. In other words, contrary to what many people say And what many people want to believe, Paul was saying we don't define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We do not change right or wrong depending on the century we live in or the country we live in. Instead, God, who is the authority over us, infinitely (laughs) over us, he's the creator, he is the definition of righteousness. Psalm 139, 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. So our God, who is righteousness itself, he is the touchstone, the measuring stick by which we evaluate what is right and what is wrong. If it's right, it is like God and is in accordance with what God says. If it's wrong, it is unlike God and it's against what God says. That's how you define what right and wrong is. Um, God has revealed to us most clearly what is right and wrong, graciously, through the scripture which he says he has breathed out. Psalm 119, 172 says, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. All your commandments are righteous. And righteousness does not only exist, but also we as the human race, what is our relationship to this righteousness? God says this, you have fallen short of the righteousness. You have fallen short of me. You are not right. You are wrong. 
We are profoundly immoral when left to ourselves. We are not profoundly moral and right people. Psalm 52, 2-3 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So what is the result of this? What is the result then of being found unrighteous, being found immoral individually and as a corporate human race in the sight of God who is righteousness? What it means is we're guilty of unrighteousness. There's a guilt that comes. There's a guilt of unrighteousness or what you might call sin, unrighteousness. And because God is righteous, that means he also does justice perfectly. He punishes what is wrong. He does not look at evildoers and say, oh, you're good. He, he punishes wrong and sin and unrighteousness. And since we're the ones who are wrong, we are the ones who must be punished. God would be unrighteous if it were not so. And God says that the punishment, our punishment is a punishment that because we are eternal beings, it is an eternal punishment. It's a, it's a punishment we begin to experience here in life and that we are under God's condemnation after this life. And that punishment is to be rejected by God. He essentially gives us the very thing we've said we want most. You don't want me? Okay, there's your punishment. You're not gonna have me. You will eternally experience death and destruction. That is the curse of sin. And because all of us are naturally unrighteous because of the curse of sin, when we read this truth of scripture, what Jesus says is we're gonna push against it. When we hear about Jesus in the gospel, we're gonna squirm naturally. We're gonna wanna leave the room. We're gonna wanna get out of the conversation. We won't wanna believe the truth. We'll argue against the truth. We'll make excuses for why we haven't kept the truth and we will choose not to believe the truth. One of the biggest barriers to a person becoming a Christian, surrendering the life, their life to Jesus Christ, who is God, is for them to simply believe they're unrighteous. I mean, before they believe anything about Jesus, the question is, what do you believe about yourself? Do you believe you're guilty? Do you believe, or do you believe you're righteous like God? Right? Because what human pride does is it says the opposite. It says this, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I really am. Like, I might not tell other people that. Like, if I were talking to people, I wouldn't come across that way. But when I go to bed at night, I think I'm a pretty good person. I feel pretty confident meeting God when I die because I can appeal to the good life that I've tried to live. And I'm not nearly as bad as other people. I'm not. I'm not as bad as other people at work. I know that. And so I can always remind God of that, right? And, and honestly, <clears throat> and this is what I think a lot of people hold, hold on to, a lot of people will say, I don't think hell's gonna be as bad as Christians make it out to be. Right? Because I think it's gonna be a party and I wanna be with everybody else. Right? I wanna be with everybody else who doesn't want God. And I don't think God is, is nearly as hard as Christians make him out to be. That's not how I would be. And so that can't be how God is. I mean, these are not things I'm just making up. These are things I've heard, right? Probably you have too. 
So as Felix and Drusilla were talking to Paul about all these things, about righteousness, what do you think was going through their head? Do you think they were convicted at all? Do you think they thought at all about their past? They reflected on their lives and the unrighteous things they had done in contrast to this one righteous God to whom they were accountable? What we read next is that Paul, he didn't only talk to them about righteousness, but he kind of teased that out a little bit. And he talked to them about self-control, which Felix and Drusilla had both demonstrably failed at in their lives, politically and personally. Felix had made a lot of bad choices in his anger. Uh, Drusilla had made poor marital choices, leaving her husband for Felix. These were public sins that everybody were aware of and saw because as a public personality, People see those sins. In fact, one of the things sinful humanity prides itself upon the most is the lack of self-control. The world says, hey, don't control yourself. In order to meet some imaginary standard of righteousness, do whatever makes you feel good in the moment. Follow your passions. Listen, just follow your heart. It's not going to lead you astray. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, just Man, put your heart as your guide. Just don't think about it, just do it, right? And most of us in this room have listened to these voices at one time or another. Uh, we've learned the hard way that, that listening to these voices does not make our lives better. <laughs> it, it might give us physical or emotional pleasure for 10 minutes, but then it drags us down into the pit of destruction and depression soon after that, where Satan loves to beat us over the head. In verse 25, Paul was trying to help Felix and Drusilla see where their lack of righteousness, where their lack of sound judgment, self-control was leading them to, which is to the coming judgment. And we don't have to imagine what Paul told them about judgment because he wrote it down. Romans 2, 3 to 5, it says this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So where was Paul going in his conversation here, right? With Felix and Drusilla about righteousness and self-control and judgment, Paul's paving the way to the cross of Christ. That's what he's doing. Paul was taking them to the feet of the merciful, forgiving, compassionate God. And he's urging them, put your faith in Christ Jesus. Christ is God in human flesh who died on that cross to take away your unrighteousness and to cover you with the righteousness of God himself. Put your faith in Christ Jesus. He has seen all the ways that you have shown no self-control. He's seen all the ways that you have followed the lusts of your flesh as you openly rebelled against him, but he loves you still. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. He shed his blood for you so that you will not shed your blood for eternity. Put your faith 
in Jesus. Because you don't have to live as an enemy of God anymore. You don't have to live in the kingdom of darkness and destruction anymore. Christ Jesus rose from the dead and he will save you with his power and might. Just put your faith in him alone and be saved. Turn away from sin. Change your mind. Don't believe the lies you used to believe about God and yourself and the world. Turn to Jesus. Entrust yourself to Jesus and be saved. And he will consider you. God will consider you righteous in Christ. And you can be declared not guilty of all your sin. You can be declared totally accepted by God today through Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. And that message hasn't changed. It's the same for everyone in this room and for everyone we know. Will you put your faith in Christ to be saved? Or will you trust in yourself or in something else to satisfy you and save you for eternity? Let's read again how Felix and Drusilla chose to respond to this pleading in verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So when Felix heard Paul's gospel preaching, it says Felix was alarmed. He was getting uncomfortable. I know of a pastor recently who's, who's, they're planning a church in a new town. There's all the excitement about this new church plant. People haven't been in the church in years, and they, you know, there's this new excitement, so they're coming to church, and he stands up and he preaches the gospel, and they're like, this is the same gospel we heard 30 years ago. And the husband and wife, there was a husband and wife who looked at each other and they said, are you feeling uncomfortable? And they said, yeah. And they got up and left the service. And that's exactly what happened in this passage here. Felix didn't like being convicted by God. And he did not turn away from his unrighteousness. He continued to keep Paul in jail He continued to meet with Paul for two years after talking about righteousness and self-control, and he kept meeting with him to try to get his money. What God wants for you today, for our friends, neighbors, relatives, for the world today, is not to do what Felix did. (laughs) Don't keep putting God off. Don't keep living in unrighteousness. Don't keep living as an enemy of God, fooling yourself that you're on good terms with God. You're not promised tomorrow, and if you read the psalm we read earlier, God calls you a fool if you think you are. What God says is this, come to me. I'm the good shepherd. Rest your life and your soul in my hands today because the work is finished. Today and on the last day when Jesus returns, what you want 
What I want is to be found in Jesus Christ. You don't want to be found in darkness and lawlessness when the Lord of righteousness shows up. And praise God that he gave you the will and the ability, for whatever reason, to get out of your bed and to drive here and to be here this morning. So the question is, what are you here for? Come to the Lord today and experience the sweetness of salvation and life in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to invite everybody who's put their faith in Christ, who's trusting in Jesus, to share in his supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a visual symbol. It's a reminder that all who trust in him, this was, a, this was ordained by Christ himself, that you're found in him and you're saved in him because of what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. And as the communion sor- servers come forward, let's just take a moment privately to talk to God. If you haven't turned to the Lord, do it now. Trust in him. Acknowledge your sins, all of us, to God. If there's sins hindering our fellowship with the Lord, let's talk to the Lord privately before we take his communion and let's experience his forgiveness and redemption and salvation and afresh as we savor communion. Let's pray silently for a minute. Lord, we thank you for your compassion and grace. It's our desire, God, to see so many others come to the table and celebrate the gospel and sing the song of your salvation to you for the glory of your name. Thank you for your mercy and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.